Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, not for the nation only, but also to gather into one of the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly amongst the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Chapter 12 Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he was the one who betrayed him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for three hundred denii and given to the poor? Denari, sorry, and given to the poor. And he said, Not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus who he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Does anybody recognise this movie poster? 
This isn't a rhetorical question. I decided to go for some audience participation today. 2007, Daniel Day-Lewis. No. There will be blood. There will be blood. Um, it was a film about oil prospecting. And it's not really a spoiler to say that in the film there was a lot of blood. There was death. It was going to happen. And you know it right from the start of the film. It's the name of the film. There will be blood. And there's the poster. And hanging over the silhouette of the oil well is a cross. Well, let's... Um, Let's open the passage today. If you haven't got it in front of you, it's page 1,082, um, 1,083, John 11, 45 through to 12, 11. And hanging over this passage is the cross. There will be blood. Again and again in this passage, it tells us, uh, that Jesus will die. Verse 51, Jesus would die for the nation. Verse 53, they made plans to put him to death. Chapter 12, verse 7, Jesus talks about the day of his burial. And then in verse 11, they make plans to put Lazarus to death as well as Jesus. Death, death hangs over the unfolding story. But if you'd, um, if you'd been reading through John for the first time, you might think it's a bit odd, this passage here. Because immediately before this, in the passage we looked at last week, in, in the first 45 verses, first 44 verses of, of chapter 11, it's the resurrection of Lazarus. And immediately afterwards, in the rest of chapter 12, it's, it's Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. There's two huge highs. The resurrection of Lazarus. The triumphal entry. And when um, Lazarus was ill, Jesus said in, in verse 4, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And, and in verse 40, uh, Jesus tells Martha, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God. And then he raises Lazarus from the dead. Wow! Jesus' most astounding miracle so far in John's Gospel. Is this the glory that he was talking about? We can skip on to chapter 12, verse 12. And this huge crowd <laughs> greets Jesus on his arrival in Jerusalem, praising him. And, and all because they'd heard about that miracle of Lazarus coming back from the dead. They were convinced by that sign. Is this the glory? And so you could imagine that it would be quite natural to go for John to go straight from Lazarus's resurrection to Jesus' triumphant arrival in Jerusalem. It all fit together well. The most amazing miracle. The most tremendous reception. All glorifying Jesus. But that isn't what John does. After Lazarus' resurrection in verse 44, very abruptly, even before Lazarus is unwrapped from his burial clothes, John switches scene. 
And from verse 45 through to 12 verse 11, we have what might seem to be a a bit of a digression. We flip back and forth between the Jewish council, the crowds in Jerusalem, and a dinner party in Bethany. So what's all this in-between stuff all about? Why is it there? Well, look at the beginning and the end of this section, where the whole, the whole bit is bookended with the same idea. Because Jesus has, has given Lazarus new life, because of that sign, lots of the Jews are believing in Jesus there. In verse 45, chapter 11, and verse 11 of chapter 12. And so we expect that those believers will also have new life. Because that's what John tells us in chapter 20. These signs are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So in between these bookends about new life and new believers, John gives us a glimpse of how this will all happen, how Jesus will bring new life to those who believe in him, how he will be glorified. And it's all about his death. The council plots it. Caiaphas prophesies it. Jesus plans it. Mary prepares for it. There will be blood. So by putting this passage in between the resurrection of Lazarus and the triumphal entry, John is showing us that the new life that Jesus gives... And the the praise and the worship that are given to King Jesus are inseparable from his death. The cross is crucial. There's no new life for us. There's no crowning of the king without the cross. That's where Jesus is glorified. So let's dig into the passage. It's a story of three different gatherings. There's the gathering of the chief priests and the Pharisees at council to to plot Jesus' death. There's the gathering of the Jews for Passover to purify themselves. And there's the gathering of Jesus' friends at dinner and a lot of perfume. So let's start with gathering one, the council. Jesus had to die. John wants us to understand that Jesus had to die and it was totally under God's control. Look at verse 45. Uh, Many of the Jews uh, believed in Jesus because, because he'd raised Lazarus from the dead, but it seems some didn't. And as we've seen before, people are divided in their response to Jesus. So some of them run off to the Pharisees um, who get together with the chief priests and they gather the, the, San, the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling council in Jerusalem. So picture the scene. There's lots of important people in a crowded room shouting and arguing. Maybe a bit like our parliament, if you've ever seen that. And they're clueless. What are we to do, they say in verse 47. They don't seem to be disputing Jesus' power. He performs many signs, they say. He's just raised a man from the dead. That's why they're meeting. But, but rather than think about the significance of those signs, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who brings new life, rather than believe in him, they're scared of him. 
They're scared of his popularity. They're scared of of what the Romans will do. They're scared they're going to lose their own power and influence. The Romans will take away our place, the temple. They'll take away our nation. The council will no longer have any power. And then the high priest stands up. He's quite rude in verse 49. Literally, it says, you don't know nothing. You are clueless. You haven't realized how you can solve the problem to your advantage. It's it's better for you if one man dies, rather than have the Romans destroy the whole nation. It's politically expedient. We kill Jesus. And no one will follow him after that. There won't be a popular uprising, and the Romans won't stomp all over us. And we avoid the deaths of thousands. Job done. How stupid of the council not to have realized that that's all it would take. It's so tragic, isn't it? Plenty of people in history um, think they can control events like that. We'll do this one bad thing to stop a worse thing happening, but events are never in our control, and the outcome is rarely what you predict. And Caiaphas got it horribly wrong. They would kill Jesus, but within a few weeks at Pentecost, thousands of people would believe in him. And in just a generation, in AD 70, the Romans would crush Judea and destroy the temple, and hundreds of thousands were killed. Everything Caiaphas predicted wouldn't happen if they killed Jesus, did happen. So he got it horribly wrong, but at the same time, he got it wonderfully right. Because without realizing, Caiaphas was prophesying. Look at verse 51. He didn't say it of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. He was speaking God's truth about what would happen. It wasn't his own idea. Jesus would die for the nation, not just for the Jewish nation, but for all God's children scattered across the world. Jesus already said the same thing, didn't he, back in chapter 10. He said, I am the good shepherd, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they'll listen to my voice. So there'll be one flock, one shepherd. There will be blood. Jesus had to die. But not because the Sanhedrin have decided it, not because the high priest has come up with his evil plan, Jesus must die because God has planned it that way and Jesus willingly obeys. Look back at at chapter 10, verse 18. No one takes Jesus' life from him, but he lays it down of his own accord. He, not Caiaphas, not the Romans, he, Jesus, has authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again that charge he received from his father. Jesus had to die because it was God's plan, God's way to gather his people and give them new life. He had to die for his people, and it was totally under God's control. Do we understand this? Do we, do we understand that there's no resurrection 
No glorious new life, no triumphal victory without the death of Jesus. Do we understand that this was no accident, but God's deliberate plan? Jesus had to die. But there's, there's a couple of months between the council's decision and Jesus' death on the cross. And it's Jesus who's in control of the timing. So uh, if we look ahead to chapter 12, verse 23, it's when Jesus is um, in Jerusalem, in the run-up to Passover, that he says to his disciples that the hour has come. The hour has come for him to die. But in, in chapter 11, verse 53, the hour has not yet come. The council can plot all they like, but Jesus has his own plans. And so in verse 54, he goes to the wilderness, and he stays there until the week before Passover. And that's the second gathering, the Passover crowd. Jesus died as our substitute. We've seen that, we've seen that Jesus had to die because it was God's plan. Now we're going to see why he had to die as our substitute. Some of you uh, might have been in a big crowd at uh, an event, hoping for someone to appear. Uh, maybe at the Brits, you know, your, your favourite singer to get out of the, the next limo onto the red carpet. Maybe next year you'll be at the coronation. It's a king going to appear on the balcony at Buckingham Palace. And there's a buzz going around the crowd and rumours. It'll be any minute. Will he? Won't he? It's exciting. And everyone's gathering here in Jerusalem in verse 55 uh, to purify themselves before the Passover festival. And there's that buzz. There's chatter. Will he or, or won't he? Will Jesus come or not? If he does, the chief priests and the Pharisees are waiting. And anyone who knows where Jesus is is expected to turn him in. Will they or won't they? And then... Uh, on Friday night, Jesus comes out of the wilderness, back to where he had given Lazarus new life. Look at 12 verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany. Therefore came to Bethany. Jesus has come to within a couple of miles of Jerusalem. And he's come deliberately and purposefully right up to the place where he knows he's going to be arrested and executed. And he does it because it's just a few days to pass over. See, Jesus is clearly choosing the time of his death and he chooses Passover. Now, Passover was the biggest event in the Jewish calendar. It was the, the remembrance, the celebration of God rescuing his people from Egypt. And in Exodus 12, Moses told the people of Israel what they had to do to be saved from that tenth and final and terrible plague on Egypt, the death of every firstborn child. Here is a firstborn child. And that night in Egypt, three and a half thousand years ago, this child was going to die. When the angel of death passed over Egypt, it was a terrible and awful judgment. Every family was going to lose their oldest child. 
But God had a plan to save his people. Each household had to take a lamb. I don't know why it's got handles. Here's a lamb. They had to choose a perfect lamb uh, without any blemishes and sacrifice it that evening. Smear some of the blood on their doorposts, roast the meat and eat it. And when the angel of death passed through Egypt that night, the blood on the doorstep, on the doorposts, was a sign that this house was safe. These people were God's people, and he would save them. The angel passed over those houses, and the firstborn there didn't die. To stop death coming to the firstborn, the lamb died in their place as a substitute, a swap. There had to be blood. There was a death in every household that night. But it didn't have to be the firstborn child. If the lamb had been sacrificed instead of the child, the child would live. And every year since then, the people of Israel were to commemorate Passover by recreating that sacrifice and and that meal to remember that that God had saved his people through the sacrifice of a substitute, the lamb that died instead of God's people, the lamb whose death meant that God's people would go free. And that's when Jesus chose to go to Jerusalem to his death. It's not significance, it's not coincidence that John has made this significance very clear. He, he's just told us that Jesus will die for his people on behalf of his people. He's told us that twice in verses 50 and 52. And in case we're still in any doubt, he's told us explicitly that this was prophecy. It's God's plan. Jesus would die for the nation, not just for the people of Israel, but for all his people. And so having told us that Jesus will die for his people, John tells us how his death saves and gathers them. He tells us by making it clear that Jesus chooses to die at Passover. Who dies at Passover? The Passover lamb. When is Jesus choosing to die? At Passover. Jesus is the perfect substitute the one who dies in our place, just like that Passover lamb. He takes on himself the guilt and the sin and the punishment that we deserve so that God's judgment passes over us and we're saved and we have life. There will be blood, but it's Jesus' blood and his blood saves us. Now, the Passover lamb was only ever symbolic. The death of an actual lamb can't substitute for the death we deserve for our sins. But it was a symbol that pointed towards Jesus, whose death really does save us and give us life. Do you remember that 
tragic irony of Caiaphas's prediction, how it, it got it so wrong and, and yet unwittingly so right. Well, here in verse 55, we have this tragic irony of all these people gathering for Passover to purify themselves. What they get so wrong is that there's nothing they can do to make themselves right with God. No amount of animal sacrifice will save us, will purify us. But meanwhile, they're failing to see the glorious and wonderful truth that Jesus is making purification possible. By dying as the pure, the sinless lamb, he takes away our sin and makes us clean. We don't purify ourselves. Jesus purifies it. And he does it because he's the perfect Passover lamb who dies for us. So Jesus had to die, and he died as our substitute. Have we accepted him as our substitute? Because if we're still trying to purify ourselves, we'll fail. And we'll still face judgment for our sin. We die. But if Jesus is our substitute, we're safe. And we live. And so we come to the third gathering, the celebration of the life that Jesus gives. So gathering three is the dinner party. And we respond in love. Jesus had to die, and he died as our substitute. And we should respond in humble thanks and extravagant love. We should show Jesus the biggest love we can. Well, let's see how Jesus' friends do this in verses 1 to 11. Jesus has come to Bethany, and his friends throw a party for him. Of course they do. He's the one who raised Lazarus from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him. Verse 2. It's a celebration of Lazarus' new life, of joyful gratitude to Jesus. And just as Jesus started his public ministry back in chapter 2 of John with a, with a party, um, he has a party here at the end of his public ministry. He loves to celebrate good food and wine with his friends. He's the Lord of life. And the life he gives his people is one of enjoyment. So this meal here, it's not like lunch at school. They're not sitting on uncomfy plastic chairs with a packed lunch that you gulp down quickly before rushing off to do something more fun. It's a banquet. They're lying down, because that's how they ate banquets in those days. Relaxing, probably for a few hours. Lots of courses of wonderful food and lots of stories and jokes and generally having a brilliant time. But then something quite surprising happens. Uh, Mary comes in, uh, verse 3, with a pound of expensive perfume. That's a lot of perfume. Uh, a pound of liquid is about a pint. This is a pint I prepared earlier. This is a normal-sized bottle of perfume. And you normally don't use more than just a spray or two. Normal perfume, spray or two, pint of perfume. 
And she pours the lot onto Jesus. And there's so much of it, she has to wipe some of it off with her hair. Now, she doesn't worry about the, the cultural scandal of letting her hair down in the presence of others. She, she just does it. Now, John makes it absolutely clear we're talking a lot of perfume. There's, there's the whole point of it. There's, there's so much that Jesus' feet need wiping, and the fragrance fills the whole house. Uh, some people wear only enough perfume that you can only smell it when you're very close to them. Some uh, wear enough to smell them in the room. This made the whole house smell. And Judas is not impressed. What a waste, he says in verse 5. So much perfume and so expensive. 300 denarii, that's... uh, Basically, a year's salary for a typical worker. So with a London living wage at £12 an hour, I've worked out that this would £22,000. Now, that's an expensive bottle of perfume. Um, This one was probably about £15. Um, I looked up John Lewis. Um, This is the most expensive perfume in John Lewis. 250 ml for... 680 pounds doesn't come near the cost of Mary's. So I I tried Harrods. Uh, Their most expensive perfume is 21,000 pounds. It is, and I quote, hand-painted with rays of 23.5 carat gold, the lavish soleil lalique extrait de parfum in its purest form, bursting with delectable aromas of cardamom, almond, and coffee, sure to take pride of place in any dressing room. (laughs) Probably not mine. Not that I have a dressing room. But but actually, that 21,000 was for three pints worth. It's a litre and a half. So it's still much cheaper than Mary's perfume. Mary's perfume, three times more expensive than the most expensive perfume you can get in Harrods. Okay, now some of you are thinking I've I've laboured this point a bit too much. But the the reason I'm doing it is I think that's what John is doing. He's doing just that. He's, He's making it clear this is not just some perfume. This is extravagantly, wonderfully everything that Mary can give. That's the point. She's giving everything she can to Jesus. And Judas doesn't like that. He'd much rather have the cash. 300 nari was about 100 silver coins. He betrayed Jesus for just 30. With 300 denarii, he could have easily dipped his hand without anyone noticing. But in verse 5, he pretends he's concerned about the poor. And Jesus' response to him needs to be seen in this context. I don't think Jesus is focusing on how we today should uh, view giving money to the poor. The Bible is absolutely clear. We should help those in need. And verse 8 doesn't in any way take away from that. But what Jesus is doing here is exposing Judas's hypocrisy and his tragic failure to get the point. If you were so interested, Judas, in helping the poor, they're always here. You could have been helping them every day. Every day that we've been together, have you been? Because the answer, of course, is no. 
Judas is, is just too aware that he has no love, either of the poor or for Jesus. Mary's humble, grateful generosity has shown him up for the fraud that he is. She's given everything to Jesus. Judas will only take. And Judas, you, you don't always have me. I'm about to be buried. Why are you thinking about money instead of my death? Haven't you understood that my death is the most important thing? Now, whether Mary fully understands the significance of what she's done or not, her love for Jesus is focused on his death. Jesus will be buried. He's going up to Jerusalem in Passover week to die as our substitute. Therefore, Mary pours perfume on him. The most absurdly valuable perfume for the most gloriously precious thing there is, the Jesus who dies for us. That's how Jesus' friends respond to Jesus. Celebrating life in extravagant love, dependent on Jesus' death. Now, we can't literally throw a dinner party or pour perfume on Jesus today. But like Mary, we do have to give him everything because he gave us everything when he died for us. If our faith is focused on his death, we will show him big love. There are many ways that we can show big love for Jesus. We can show it in the way we treat our family and our friends, putting them first instead of ourselves. We can show it as we make Jesus a priority in the way we spend our time wanting to pray, read his word, wanting to meet with other friends of Jesus in church or, or youth group, wanting to tell our friends about Jesus. Maybe you're thinking about what GCSEs to do, what university to go to, what career to follow, how to spend your retirement. You could decide based on how easy or fun it'd be, or how much money you'd get, or what brings you the most respect. Or you could decide based on how you could love and serve Jesus and love and serve other people. How you can give your life to follow Jesus. That's responding to Jesus in love, in humble, thankful, all of life worship. Jesus had to die for his people. He died as our substitute so that we can have life. And we respond in big love. Now let me pray. Father God, thank you that Jesus came to die as our substitute. Please help us to focus our faith on his death and that we might respond in big love with all of our lives. In Jesus' name.
Amen.